The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. This is the word of the Lord from Genesis 25. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimram, Joshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shura. Joshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Lisham, and Liam. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Ledea. These were all the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, were buried in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife, with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God sent Isaac, his son, um, sorry, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Bir Laharoi. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth, Neoboth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, and Adbeel, and Mibsam, and Mishma, and Duam, and Massa, and Hadad, and Tima, Zeta, Nephish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of Ishmael, the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and he was gathered to his people. They settled from Havaha to Shuh, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramine of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramine, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah was Rebecca, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her, day, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they named, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in the tents. Jacob loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, 
Let me eat of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear it to me now. So he swore it to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. Let's give Becca a hand, a round of applause for uh, reading that. Goodness. And everybody's like, this is why I don't read the Old Testament. All right, uh, real quick, I've got a couple announcements, guys. Um, This Tuesday night, this Tuesday night, listen, at Sacred City Church, we are not about just having a big gathering. We really want to make an impact in our city. And the only way to make an impact in our city is for God to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that takes prayer, okay? Prayer and the Holy Spirit, that's when a movement happens, okay? So this Tuesday night, we're actually meeting at our office space. The office is at the center on Brady Street. Um, It's in the upstairs. We're going to meet there. None of the remodeling has been done yet, but we're going to meet up there at 7 p.m. This is Tuesday the 26th, 7 p.m. We're going to pray, all right? For those of you with kids, most, a lot of us, we've got another little room. We're going to turn a movie on and let them play, and hopefully they won't kill, each, kill themselves, right? So uh, we're going to let them play there, and we're going to pray in the room right next door. So I really encourage everyone, if you have Fight Club, if you have Porterbrook, cancel those. Be there. I want us to pray together as a church, okay? Um, secondly, next this Friday, anybody know what Good Friday is? Right, Good Friday, this, this Friday night, we have a ten embrace service. So if you've noticed, we love um, a historical expression of church, okay? We like our church to feel really old, and we like to do things the way they've done them for centuries. So one of the things that we do is Good Friday, we have a Good Friday service. It's called a ten embrace service. It's incredibly dark, all right? If you ever like, never mind, I'm going to go there. I was going to say, if you're ever in, like, into goth and stuff when you're in high school or something, you'd like Friday night, okay? Okay. Uh, it's really dark. It's kind of like a funeral um, because that's what Friday nights, that's what Good Friday is all about. Jesus Christ dying our death on the cross. So um, we encourage you come, come somber. You'll leave somber as well. Um, it's a very meaningful service. All there is, is there's some singing, scripture reading, some candles are being extinguished as Jesus is dying. It ends with the, the Christ candle walking out um, and being extinguished, being hidden from us because he, he died and Three days later, we, well, we know the story. So I encourage you, come on out Friday night right here. It's my favorite service of the year. Um, maybe that tells you a lot about my personality. 7 p.m. right here on Friday night. Okay, and then last but not least, if you call Sacred City your home, let me just do this. If you call Sacred City your home, please raise your hand. Okay, all of you don't park in this parking lot next week. All right, if you raise your hand, you're busted. Don't park in this parking lot next week, okay? I want to leave it open for Easter. I know all of us, we're missionaries, so we're living on mission. We're inviting friends to come. You know, a lot of people will come on Easter, come Resurrection Sunday. So we're inviting them. Leave this parking lot open for them next week, okay? You can park. There's parking lots all. There's parking lots down here at the pool. There's parking lots all the way behind all these cottages that you can get through a roundabout way. So park there. Leave these parking spots out here open for visitors. Is that cool? Just trying to serve them, love them, be good missionaries, all right? Excellent. That's it. That's all we got. So let's jump into this. Are we ready to do this? 
Genesis 25. If you have a Bible, turn there. If you have an app, turn there. If you have the Bible app on your phone or on your smart tablet, you can hit live events. You can type in Sacred City Church and all of our liturgy will pull up automatically right there in your phone, on your iPad. Okay? We've got a lot to cover this morning. I, gotta, I might as well just look. Okay, it's 10 after. All right, I got plenty of time. Buckle up. Hopefully, you know, if you're hypoglycemic, you pack some snacks or something. Mama's got a big purse. Hopefully she's got some gummy bears in there for you or something. You're going to need them today. All right. We got a lot to cover. All right. It's not going to be a traditional uh, Palm Sunday sermon. We're just going to keep plugging away through the book of Genesis. What I'm going to do today is I'm going to give you a really brief overview or a flyover of the first part of this chapter. And then we're going to kind of sit down and we're going to study the last few verses. It's a, if you noticed in that reading there, it's a really choppy text. It's actually out of chronological order. So I think um, the way I'm going to do it, I think it'll serve us the best. It'll help us to understand it. Uh, one of the most beneficial things for you personally and for us as a church is to reflect, study, and remember how it is that God saves us. That's called the gospel. So if you ever hear us say, remember the gospel, we're not talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? The, the gospel stories of Jesus. We're talking about the gospel, how God saves wicked sinners like us. So it's really beneficial for us to dive down into the nitty gritty details. Many people are scared of these details. Many people, there's a lot of controversies and a lot of, you know, arguments in these details. So people want to shy away from them. We think that's actually a really bad idea, and we think that that brings us away from an appropriate worship. Most people in the church world, we believe, have no real concept of all of God's work that goes into our salvation. And so they don't really know what God has done to save us. They don't really think it's a very big deal. And when you don't think anything's a big deal, guess what? Your worship is really weak, Right? Our worship, if, if our salvation is just kind of, ah, uh, yeah, he's a good guy, so he saved me, right? Or I was actually awesome. Who wouldn't save me, right? Duh, he wants to draft me, right? Then our worship is really weak. But if we, when we discover and we study and we sit down in the gospel and we dig around there and we see, whoa, how bad it really says I am and what lengths God went to save me, then it causes us to do what it's supposed to cause us to do. And that's worship. See, there's a lot of things this church could be about. We could be about social action and just cleaning up our city. Are we about that? Yes, we're about that, but not primarily. We could be about building a big gathering and making us all feel really good about ourselves and walking out smiling and going, oh, that was motivational, right? With a big old grin on our face. That's not what we're about. What we want to be about is the worship of the real God. We want to be about pointing people to a real God and us going, whoa, and us feeling really small in his presence, but feeling intimately loved at the same time. So this gathering It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about our city. This gathering's about God. And we think if we get that right, if we get our worship right, then our relationships will get worked out. Then our relationship with the city will get worked out. Then our relationship with each other will get worked out. Everything else, it starts vertically. It starts vertically, and then it goes to the horizontal realm. So, 
I think it's crazy that people are afraid to get down to these details and they're afraid to really study the gospel and really, how does God save us? Because listen to this, the Bible says angels, right? Most of us say, what's the gospel? How does God save us? We're kind of like, eh, yeah, he saved us. But the Bible tells us that angels, they look at the gospel and they go, what? Are you kidding me? It says they long to look into it. It says they look into it and they go, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, don't you think that would get a little old? Like for eternity, for a very long time, or since angels were created, they've been going, holy, holy, holy. Like, that's not like humans. (laughs) That wears off, right? You go to Cal, you go to Florida, you wake up in the morning, the sunrise goes up over the ocean, you go, holy, holy, holy. Whoa, a week of that, wow, awesome. A month of that, the alarm goes off to wake up early. You're like, nah, nah. You talk to somebody who's lived in Florida for three, you know, three years, five years, whatever. How often you go to the beach? Ah, it's crowded. Tourists. You're like, it's the beach. You sit in the house and watch Wheel of Fortune? You could do that in Iowa. You live on the beach. When you're surrounded by humans, we lose that worship factor. Angels don't. Angels can see things clearly. They look into the gospel and they constantly go, holy, holy, holy. Wow. Why do they do that? Because angels didn't get grace. Angels sinned once, boom, judgment, kicked out of heaven. No second chance, no grace. There is no gospel for angels. They look at how God treats man and they go, holy, 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 expletive, probably. I don't know. That's probably what they say. I don't know. Could, maybe not. But the gospel is that magnificent. It's that beautiful. It's that awe-inspiring. It's that worship-inducing if we see it correctly. So we're going to see today, we're going to, we're going to dive down into a little bit of details of our salvation, but we're also going to see the stage being set for a whole lot of family drama. Anybody know anything about family drama? I figured there might be a couple of us. I had a PhD in family drama before I was out of high school. All right. The gospel and drama go hand in hand. A lot of times the gospel causes drama in our family. Jesus said, Jesus said it would be, the, it be so. He would bring a sword that would separate mother, father, husband, wife, brother, sister. That the gospel can be a source of division in our family. But the gospel also is the only hope that we have for redemption of our relationships. It's the only hope that we have for God bringing in, keeping and sustaining marriage, keeping and sustaining friendships. We see that we say the only way to make disciples, which is what we're called to do, is in community and on mission. Okay, but the only way to stay in community and stay on mission is the power of the gospel. Because you get in community and you realize I don't like these people very much and I don't like the way they see me. Because they realize that I'm not as cool as I think I am. So they begin to rub me wrong. I begin to rub them wrong. And I I realize that it takes the power of the gospel to keep me in community. I have to remember, I'm worse than I ever thought possible. But I'm simultaneously more loved than I ever hoped or imagined or dreamed by God. And that keeps me. What about mission? Guess what? Very few people wake up in the morning wanting to live (laughs) self-sacrificially. Hmm, let me think. March madness or go live on mission. Right? We don't want to do that. It takes the gospel. We have to remember how God came as a missionary for us and that therefore sends us out on mission to our city. The gospel is the only thing that will keep us on mission. So it's important for us to dig down deep here and study the gospel. So we're going to do that today. 
And we're going to dig in. Genesis 25, let me pray. Father, I don't presume to be able to speak anything of value today without your Holy Spirit. I don't presume to think anybody can even hear anything of value today without your Holy Spirit. So what we do is we humble ourselves before your word. We are arrogant people. We think we know everything. We think we're the smartest people that ever lived, and that is not the, the case. So we humble ourselves before your word and we ask, speak to us this morning. Father, I ask that you would think through my brain, that you would speak through my vocal cords, that you would use me. And Father, you would do what only you can do in this room. We believe in God, the Almighty. We believe in his son who died our death. And we believe in the Holy Spirit that applies those things to us and fills believers. Be present today for your glory and for our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's dig in. Verse 1, Genesis 25. So at Sacred City, we go verse by verse through the whole books of the Bible. We don't jump around. We're at Genesis 25. We've been here now for 28 weeks, okay? We're over, we're about halfway through, guys. We're going to be in here for over a year. We're, ha- we're about halfway through the book of Genesis. After this week, we will be halfway through, all right? So let's get in there. Genesis 25, verse 1, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah, okay? Verse 1, right away, Abe is still kicking, Right? He's old, but takes another wife, and Abe proves the whole world wrong and has six more kids. He's looking at everybody going, I told you it wasn't me. I told you it was Sarah the whole time. Right? He gets another wife. He's really old, and he has six more kids. All right? Abe really took God's command to be fruitful and multiply to heart. Right? What we see here is that God's promise to make Abraham into a father. What was the promise? To make Abraham into a father of what? Many nations, right? That, has, that is coming to pass. Abraham has Isaac. Abraham has Ishmael. And now Abraham has six more kids that Becca pronounced for us that I'm not even going to try to do to inherit the covenant promises of God. Now listen, here's what's crazy. These are going to become many nations. Ishmael, becomes the father of Islam and the father of the Arab nations, okay? Isaac becomes the father of Israel, okay? That's that's what happens. So this is God fulfilling his promise. Many nations are coming from Abraham's seed, right? Now, what we also see, if, if you keep reading down there, is you see that Abraham gives everything he owns to his son Isaac, Okay? All of his kids don't get the same benefit. All of his kids don't get the same promises. The covenant, God's special relationship, goes to Isaac. Is that fair? No. It's grace. Okay? Isaac gets the special relationship with God. And what we, get, what we see is Genesis chapter 25 is a chapter where the torch, the gospel torch begins to pass. Okay, did you hear that? This chapter is a chapter of transitions. It's a chapter where they're passing the torch of the gospel. This is one of the most encouraging ones for me as a father. We see the faith of Abraham go to Isaac, his son. That's good news, right? We see the covenant relationship that God had with Abraham transition now 
to his son Isaac. And then also to Isaac's son, Jacob. So right away in these first few verses, we are saying farewell. Everybody say bye to Father Abraham. Okay? He's been great. It's been fun. It's been real. Last, 12, last uh, 14 chapters, we spent studying the life of Abraham, and now he's done. He's dying. He dies. He gets buried in the cave that he bought for his wife. He has done his part. He's been faithful. He's trained up Isaac in the way that he should go. And now, as we saw a little bit last week, Isaac is making Abraham's faith his own. Isn't this what we want to see, parents? It, what a joy and a thrill to see our children embrace the Christian faith. It's not an automatic. God commands us to teach our kids his law and the gospel, to pray with them, to model repentance and faith with them, to be intimately involved in the local church with them, and to trust them into his sovereign hands. It takes a lot. And this should be really encouraging for us who are parents because now we see Isaac embracing the true and living God. And now, listen to this, for the next 10 chapters, our study will, all, will be all about Isaac and Jacob. Actually, over 50% of the whole book of Genesis is on the life of Jacob, who will later be called Israel. All right? If you ever wonder why this little tiny nation that's as big as, you know, some of our smaller states gets all this press in the news. There's always this drama going on about Israel and our relationship with Israel and the world's relationship with Israel begins here. It's crazy. Comes all the way back to here. So Abe goes on. He has some more sons. He passes down his fortune and his covenant goes to Isaac. And then he says, farewell and walks off script. I pray that I go out so well. I think this should be our prayer as men and women. Serve God in our generation, pass our faith on to our kids, and then die and be with Jesus. That's a life well lived. Drop the mic, boom, walk off right? Then we pick up the story down in verse 19. So what else happens? Uh, Ishmael dies, okay? Ishmael has a bunch of kids, right? Ishmael has a bunch of kids. If you read their names, you can tell they're Arabic, right? It's the, he's the father of the Arab nations. Ishmael has a ton of kids. Again, father of many nations, God's going to bless him. And then Ishmael dies at a ripe old age, okay? So we're going to pick up the story down in verse 19. Isaac and Rebekah, look at verse 19. Isaac and Rebekah can't have kids. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, Aramea, pat him around the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Sound familiar? For those of you who have been with us for a little while, sounds just like his mama, right? Sounds just like Sarah, who could not have children for a long time, right? So, Rebecca is also barren. Just like Abe and Sarah, they're barren. But Isaac, we see in verse 21, he prays to the Lord. He prays to the covenant-keeping God. What's hard to notice here because of the choppy chrono chronology um, that, that's in this chapter is this is actually a, over a 20-year period. Okay? Rebecca 
was barren for 20 years. And Isaac then prayed for her to the Lord for 20 years. What's our response when things don't go our way? We take it to the Lord in prayer. Isaac had learned faith and patience from his dad. Did you hear that? Faith and patience, they go hand in hand. Hebrews tells us we inherit the promises of God through faith and patience. Isaac had watched his dad suffer well. Isaac had watched his dad go through really difficult times and keep the faith and hold on. And with faith and patience, he watched his dad inherit the promise. And at the ripe old age, watched his wife give birth. So Isaac learned it. Okay, she's barren, but I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep going to God. And after 20 years, praise God, after 20 years of barrenness, God brings the promise. After 20 years of faith and patience, Rebecca gets pregnant with twins. God answers Isaac's prayers providentially and graciously. He gives them twins. But then we see, and this is going to be the trailer for the rest of the movie. Okay? What happens next is a trailer for the next 10 chapters. Within these next 16 verses, we're going to have their lives in a nutshell. We're going to see the seed of the rest of the drama. Verse 22. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? I love this, ladies. Now, this is just... This, the Bible is so real. It's so down to earth. It's so, how many women pray for babies and then they get pregnant and they're like, what is going on? What is this? What is happening to me? I didn't know it was going to be like this. Right? So she's got two twins and these twins, like this is hilarious. The Bible teaches the doctrine of original sin. Because of Adam and Eve, every human being is born in sin. That in our wombs, we're sinful. We don't, we're not born and then taught how to sin, right? My, my baby is nine months old and she grabs something that she wasn't supposed to have. She can't walk or anything. She can crawl around. She grabs something that's small enough. Zoe's little, a shoe for a doll. She grabbed that thing and she knew she could put it in her mouth. And I, and Zoe went up just like this and looked up. And before Zoe, Zoe didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. Nobody said anything. Piper went, Nine months old. She knows she's not supposed to have it. Her sister, she knows her sister's going to come after the shoe. It's a thing that could, she puts it in her mouth. It's going to get lodged there, right? She could choke on it. It's not helpful for her. And what does she do? Immediately, let's just say this. Nine months old, confronted in her sin. Right? This is how we respond. And we see these two Babies in the womb of Rebecca, and they're already fighting, right? She's like, ooh, like, normally like, oh, he's kicking. She's like, I think he just kicked him in the head, right? Like, they're like <laughs> UFC fighters in the womb, right? Dropping elbows. Oh, that's my spleen. Let go, right? Like, they're fighting, and she's going, what is going on within me, right? They're sinful even in the womb. They're wrestling. They're striving. They're fighting, And what we're going to see through the narrative of their life, they're fighting for significance. They're struggling to be the best. They're struggling to be better than the other one. Any siblings ever feel that? Right? That's what's going on. So, but this is great. What does Rebecca do? Look at verse 20. 
22, the last part of verse 22. So she went to inquire of the Lord. She went to pray. She didn't just go gossip about it. She didn't just get depressed and break out her journal, right? And just, you know, write a dear diary letter. She went to the Lord and brought her request to God. And the Lord said to her, this is not the best answer to prayer. This is probably why we don't go to God more often. He doesn't tell us what we want to hear, right? Oh, we want them to go to God. They're fighting in my womb. What's going on? Oh, they're just soccer players. No big deal. They're going to be superstars, Olympic champions. Don't worry about it, right? That's not what God says. We go to God and he gives us the truth, not what we want to hear. This is what he says. There's two, here's what's going on, Rebecca. There's two nations in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. And the older shall serve the younger. The older shall serve the younger. Okay, this is scary for a mom to hear, especially in this ancient culture, because the firstborn had all the rights. The firstborn is who the family's name went through. The firstborn is who the wealth went through. And listen to this. In the covenant, the firstborn is who the covenant promise went through. Whoever was going to get the firstborn covenant, that's your seed will be Jesus. It's kind of a bonus, right? If you're in the covenant, your family line, Jesus will come through your family line. Salvation will come through the world, through your covenant line. And God speaks to her and said this right of... Uh, primogeniture, I think it's how you say it, the, the firstborn gets the rights that all the old, t- old world used to live by in that patriarchal society. He says, I'm going to flip that on its head. The one I'm supposed to choose, I'm not going to choose. The strong one, I'm going to pass. The weak one, I'm going to pick. It's not a great word for her to hear. But, right, there's two nations growing in your womb. womb. She's like, oh, no wonder I feel like a school bus. I get it, Right? God prophesies to her that the older is going to serve the younger, reversing the cultural norms and the rights of the firstborn. Then what do we see? We see the kids being born, right? The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Ewok, I mean Esau. (laughs) Right? Esau comes out first, he's red, he's covered in hair. Jacob's like, oh, right? Like almost every dad is like, we're like, ah, is his head supposed to look like that? Right? His name means red. And then we see Jacob. This is what's cool. So Esau comes out. He's like a little Ewok. He's all hairy and red. So they go red. Let's name him red. All right. And then, but what's funny is they, they pull, they pull Esau out. And then all of a sudden, push. Jacob has got latched on with an ankle pick, pulling on his foot, coming out of the womb, following after him, right? He's fighting. He's like, no, it's, I'm coming out first, right? You ain't coming without me. We didn't, we're tied. This is a tie, right? I'm connected. It's a tie, right? So this competitive nature has already started in the womb. And this is this also this clutching of the heel is also kind of a euphemism for being deceitful. It's also like, uh, like he's a deceit, he's a deceiver. He's a trickster. Okay. And we're going to see that continue to play out. See, Jacob is striving from birth. 
He's been wrestling for significance since before he was born. And now at birth, he's grabbing on Esau, trying to make his way out first. Now, what scripture tells us is that Jacob, or like, I mean, what scripture tells us is Esau, like his wolf man body type would allude to, is a man's man. Right? He's a duck dynasty, beard growing, animal killing, man of the field. Right? He grunts a lot. Right? He smells. He, he literally, listen, this is later on in the story. When, when, when uh, uh, Isaac is blind and he's going to bless one of the brothers, he, one of the ways he does it is by smell. Okay? He's blind. So he's like, <laughs> smells like Esau. Right? So this guy is a man's, I mean, he don't shower. Right? He's a man's man. He's a man of the field. Right? He's a hunter. He becomes a great hunter. But this is interesting. Jacob, he's a tent-dwelling, intellectual, soup-cooking mama's boy. He's got soft hands, and he likes it that way. Right? It's a little nerve-wracking. Right? He's rocking out to Justin Bieber. Right? He's looking himself in the mirror. He's wondering if my belt, does my belt match my shoes? This is... Right? He, it's nerve-wracking. Like, and Isaac's like, what did I do? Right? But Isaac is loving Esau. Esau would go out. He was awesome with a bow. He'd bring in the food. He loves Esau. Jacob, or I mean, Isaac loves Esau. Rebecca loves Jacob. Parents, don't choose favorites. It's bad news. Or do what my parents did and just tell us all we're their favorite. Then we fight about it when we go back to our room. Mom said I was her favorite. She told me I was her favorite. What? Right? You learn this little trick. Right? So, of course, David loves Esau. Mom loves Jacob. But we got a problem here. Who's going to get the promised inheritance? Think about this. Twins born almost at the exact same time. Esau comes out first, but Jacob's clutching his heel. Who's going to get the covenant promise? Who's going to get the blessing from God? Who's going to get the riches and the wealth and the name? And who's going to get that? Who's going to, who will get God's gracious covenant? The line of Esau was the cultural norm where the blessing flows through the firstborn. But remember God's prophecy. God said that he was going to reverse the way of the world. He's going to flip the script. Why would God, listen to me, why would God choose the younger instead of the older brother? Why? Now, I'm going to make your brain hurt. Okay? I'm just going to tell you that and make your brain hurt. We're going to go to Romans chapter 9 because we have to. We don't get to just guess at this text and say, well, why would God choose this person? Why would God choose that person? The Bible specifically tells us why in Romans chapter 9. Please flip your Bible or your app to Romans chapter 9. Are you ready for your brain to hurt? I hope you come to church to think because God gave you a mind and he wants you to use it. He wants you to use it well. Romans chapter 9, verse 7. When you're there, say there. Okay. Not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So this is what he's saying. Listen to me. The covenant passes through faith. The covenant is passed down through election and through faith. Okay, we can become the offspring of Abraham by faith. Just because you were born of Abraham doesn't mean you get to be a part of 
the, the, the covenant. doesn't mean you're, you're chosen, okay? We see, saw that with Ishmael. Now let's keep reading. Verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the what? Promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I'll return and Sarah will have a son. We've already learned that. Look at this. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. So you see, this is where we are, right? This is where we are, Genesis 25. Though they were not yet born, say not yet born. And had done nothing, say it. Either good or bad, say it. In order, you don't have to say this, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Why did God choose Jacob? So that his purpose of election might continue. Whoa. Not because of anything they did, not because of anything they're going to do. God elected Jacob. He chose Jacob because so that the purpose of election would continue. Now let's keep reading. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. So it's all God. It's all God. Now look, she was told, Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger as it was written. Oh Lord, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's God saying that. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice? Now listen, this is what it should cause us to do. That's not fair. God loves one and hates another just because of his purpose of election, but not because of anything they ever did. We should say, that's not fair. Paul assumes that's exactly what we're supposed to say. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? This is what he says. By no means. Uh... Okay. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture even says of Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Listen, the doctrine of election, or as you might come to know it, as predestination, is constant throughout all of Genesis, throughout all the Bible. And would it, 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 listen, if you try to avoid it because you don't like it or you don't get it, it's a little bit like playing the game when we were kids, step on a crack and you break your mama's back. Remember playing that game? It's real fun until you get to a really old street, right? And then you're like, my mom, right? She's done for, right? You can't, listen, the only way to avoid election and predestination is by bouncing around week after week and preaching stuff on, you know, stress and parenting and just taking a little bit of scripture here and a little bit of scripture there and hopping all over. If you take chunks of the Bible, it's impossible. You cannot get away with, you cannot get away from it. This week as I was studying, you know, so, listen, we're, we're, we're very theologically driven. We're not consumer driven. I don't preach because of your needs. I preach because of what the Bible says for me to preach. In the history of the church, in the history of the church, there's two famous 
theologians who are not predestinarian. Two, John Chrysostom, I can't even say his name, Chrysostom, and John Wesley, founder of Wesleyan Methodist, right? Those are the only two. People want to classify predestinarian as Calvinism. It existed long before Calvinism. Long before. The, the majority of the world's good theologians are predestinarian. Two aren't. Right? But our American religion hates that idea that somebody other than me is in control. Right? So we're going to have to dig down into this. The same thing happens with this. See, we can't avoid it. It keeps coming up. You might be tired of it. But listen, if you've experienced it, the doctrine itself is a tremendously comforting thing as long as you don't sit down and try to work out every bit of detail in the intellectual implications of it, right? That's going to be exhausting. I'm not trying to preach my own little pet doctrines, but we just can't get away from this. It's everywhere in Genesis and it's absolutely essential for us to understand the nature of the gospel and the nature of our salvation. I think we have to understand election and predestination at least in a general sense in order to really worship God and enjoy your salvation. Did you hear that? Do you enjoy your salvation? Does meditating on how you were saved bring you to worship? Does it thrill you? Does it move your heart? Now listen, most people, if you ask them, why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Listen to me here. Let me, let me play this out. Most people, you ask them, why are you a Christian? They immediately say, because I chose Jesus. That is true. But that's from the human point of view. Ephesians 1 and the whole book of Genesis is looking from the other point of view. It's looking down from God's point of view, in a sense. The answer here is, listen, the primary cause Paul is saying and Moses is saying here is that you choose God because he has already chosen you. I'll put it this way. Why do some people choose Jesus? Why do some people turn from their sins and follow God? Why are some people willing to lay their lives down and live like missionaries in our city? The answer is because always in every circumstance, God has already chosen them first. Now, when somebody says, I don't like it that way. I think the real reason is because I accepted Christ. The answer, of course, is that's the secondary reason. This is the, this is the brilliance of the gospel. This is the brilliance of election. God doesn't elect us and save us in spite of our choices. He doesn't predestine us in spite of our choices, but through our choices. That, that will melt your brain, right? It's just, he uses our choices. Are we predestined? Yes. Do our choices matter? Absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. So when someone says, I don't like it, the real reason is because I accepted Christ, that of course is the secondary reason. According to Paul and Moses, it's not the primary reason. Let me show you the problem. Watch this. Let me show you the problem that comes up. If you think your choice is primary, if you think you chose Christ first, let me show you what the problem that comes up. Okay? So here we go. Was our choice primary or was God's choice of us primary? Which comes first? Which comes second? Which causes which? Here's the answer, I think. 
ask you a question. Why are you a Christian? The first answer is always from the human point of view, because I've received Christ. Okay. Okay, good. Yes, yes, yes. Good. Why did you receive Christ and other people haven't? Well, because I admitted my sins. Well, good. Why did you admit your sins and other people haven't? Well, because I humbled myself and other people didn't. Great. Here comes the question. Why do you think you humbled yourself and other people didn't? Do you see where we're headed here? Can you see where we're going? Do you see the logic, as the logic is playing out here? Listen, as long as your choice is primary, as long as your choice is the first reason that you're a Christian, the real bottom line of why you're a Christian and other people aren't today is because you're better. There's no other way out of it. You're better. You think you're better. You're smarter. Or maybe you're more open. Or maybe you're more humble. But that's still better. If you could say, you're going to keep following that down. Or maybe say, well, there's nothing better about me. I know there's nothing better about me. I was just willing. Well, then you're more willing. And that makes you better. Do you see how this plays out? If our choice is primary, it comes back to the reason I chose Christ and this person didn't is because I'm a little bit awesome. And that, listen, that goes against everything scripture teaches. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, this is what he says about himself. I was the least of all the apostles. I am unworthy to even be called an apostle. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. So he's saying everything that I am is because of the grace of God. Everything was given to me as a complete gift. I didn't bring anything into this salvation. He chose me. That's why I chose him. If you believe God's choice is primary, if you believe God reaches down and chooses you, and then your response to that is you choose him, that means you think you are really saved by grace alone. But if you believe your choice is primary, then when you say, I am what I am by the grace of God alone, you don't actually mean it. What you actually mean is, I'm kind of, I am what I am kind of by the grace of God, but I had a little bit, I was still a little bit better than other people. See, I am almost completely by the grace of God alone, but there was this one little bit of difference between me and other people. No, says Paul. There are no qualifications. There are no qualifications at all. He chose you because he chose you. What? It shouldn't bring us to worship. Somebody says to a person who understands your choice as being primary, are you a Christian? They say, well, of course I'm a Christian because I received Christ. But you see, if you believe your choice was secondary, if you believe your choice was secondary and God's choice of you was primary and somebody says, well, are you a Christian? This is what you say. Yes, I know. Crazy, isn't it? Can you believe it? I'm the most unlikely candidate. I can't believe I'm saved. I can't believe that I'm a Christian. I can't believe I do this. I can't believe God saved me. I deserve nothing but death and hell. Remember when we were sinning? I was the better one, wasn't I? I was a better sinner. I can't believe I'm saved. 
A person who realizes that God's choice of them was primary is humble. It was all grace, not 90% grace and 10% me. It was all grace. I was minding my own business, sinning really well, and God showed up. It's crazy. I'm saved. It's crazy. But it's true. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God in election means that you will always be able to take yourself lightly. Do you realize that's, that's one of our great problems? We take ourselves way too seriously. Somebody calls us a name and slaps a label on us and we get offended. If we really understood the depravity of man, if we really understood our sin, listen to this. Somebody calls you a name, you know what you'd say? I'm actually worse than that. If you knew it was in my heart, I'm actually worse than what you just called me. Thank God I'm saved by grace and grace alone. The gospel makes us humble people. But if somebody, if you don't get that gospel, if you think God saved you because maybe you're a little bit good or maybe you're really smart or maybe you can understand things really well, if you think that's why when somebody labels you, maybe even incorrectly, like Jesus, they called him a glutton, they called him a glutton and a sinner and they called him a drunkard. And what did he do? (laughs) That's what he did. Didn't didn't change him. Didn't do it arrogantly, like morons. He didn't do it like that. He said, sheep without a shepherd, they don't get it. Didn't touch him because his identity was in who he was in God. Is that how you respond when people label you incorrectly? Or do you lash out and try to prove them wrong? That's not who I am. That's not what I did. That's not what I said. Humility, saved by grace and grace alone. Why me? I don't know. There's no good reason in me at all. Now look, we see this in Genesis 25 in the lives of Jacob and Esau. Verse 29. We're going to go, this is where we're going to sit down. Okay. 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Jacob, cooking stew, that a boy, cooking dinner, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat. Now this is hilarious. Let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Now listen, the scholars who translated this did some work for us because that's actually not what it says. And if we could read it in the Hebrew, you would get a better understanding of of this guy Esau. Because it literally says, he comes in, he says, let me eat some of that red stuff. Red stuff. I'm tired. (laughs) He doesn't say stew. He doesn't say soup. He doesn't say pottage or porridge. He says, red stuff. Red stuff. He says it twice. (laughs) It's like, oh my gosh. And then he went, right? Or something. Or he tore his shirt or something. Or braided his chest hair. I don't know what he did. Right? So we get this, we get this picture of who Esau is. And then look at Jacob. Listen, listen. Jacob, he is cool and he is calculated and he is a deceiver and he is strategic and he is, should be on the celebrity apprentice. 
Meathead brother comes in. Oh, give me some of that red stuff, red stuff. Esau goes, sell me your birthright. This is the brother you don't play Monopoly with. Right? Sell me your birthright. Esau, I'm about to die. I'm about to die. This is my, I'm starving to death. My organs are eating each other. What use is my birthright to me? Listen, listen. Guys, he is, comp- he is compelled by what's in front of his face. He's compelled by his belly. He's compelled by his present circumstances. He sees what he's seeing in front of him far more meaningful, far more powerful than the inheritance that's been promised to him. And look what Jacob does. Jacob says, swear to me now. Jacob knows he's got him. Jacob knows this guy is such a meathead. A bowl of red stuff, red stuff, and I'll get his birthright for it. Jacob's like, I've been planning this. So Esau swore to him and Esau sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And look at this. Look how abrupt. I mean, it's really, when you read it in the Hebrew, it's even more abrupt than it comes up. Look at this. This is talking about Esau. He ate and drank and rose and went. Ugh. Right? That's the only way to say that. He ate and drank and rose and went. He didn't care. Guys, look at this. This is meathead central, but it's also incredibly telling of his heart. He just sold his birthright. Not only wealth and honor and prestige and the family's name, but the he sold the mission of God. He sold the opportunity to be drafted into the story of God and for Jesus, the future redeemer of all things, for Jesus to come through his family line. He sold that for a bowl of red stuff, red stuff. And then what did he do? He, he ate, he drank, he rose, he left. Didn't even mean anything to him. He just sold his birthright. And what it's going to tell us later, and um, I think it's in Hebrews, it says he's going, to, he's going to want to repent of this. He's not going to be able to. He's going to seek out his birthright with repentance, but it was too late for him. Esau is a worldly, meat-headed, compulsive individual. The author of Hebrews calls him profane. But Jacob is not much better. Jacob is a cold, calculated deceiver. He's a master manipulator. He's a selfish schemer. So the amazing thing, listen, the amazing thing about election and predestination is that God's grace is that both of these dudes are selfish sinners who deserve help. Both of these guys deserve to be snuffed out. But God shows grace to one of them. Now, there's some people who take a verse in Romans 8, 28, 20 through 30, that says God foreknew people, and then because he foreknew people, he predestined them and justified them and all these different things. Now, there's a lot of different... So basically what it says is this. You'll hear this. Or, oh, I believe in predestination like this. That God, because he's all-knowing, he looks down the corridors of time, and he sees the people, listen to this, he sees the people who are going to choose him, And therefore, he predestines those. And we're like, oh, that sounds 
okay, that sounds kind of good. Until you really get into that argument, you look, hold, hold, hold. God looks down to see who's going to choose him, and then he predestines those. Hmm. Why would you predestine something that's already destined to happen? I'm going to see who's going to choose me, and then I'm going to make them choose me. Wait, what? Not only that, but the word foreknow in the Bible isn't like an intellectual knowledge. It's love. Remember? And Adam knew his wife, and they got pregnant. It's a love. So God foreloves his people. God looks down the corridors of time and says, I'm going to choose this person. I'm going to place my love on this person. It has nothing to do with if they're going to choose me or not. My love will cause them to choose me. So God did not elect Jacob because he was a good guy or because Jacob was going to be a good guy. God is going to make Jacob into a good guy through his purposes of election. So God, how does God do that? How does God make a person into a Christian? If you're in this room and you are not a Christian, maybe you grew up and you saw this really religious picture of Christians. You don't have anything to do with it. You think like all Christians are white right-wing Republicans. Listen, that's not reality. That is the perception that our culture generates, but that's not reality. That you don't become a Christian because you're a good person. You don't clean up your life and then become a Christian. Only God can make a person a Christian. Jesus says in John 6, no man, listen, no man can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Did you hear that? You can't even come to God unless God draws you to himself. Okay, well, what about this? John 3 says that you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. You can't even see the kingdom. You can't even see it to want the thing unless God opens your heart and God opens your eyes. If that's true, though, then there's always going to be this humble wonder. I can't believe God did this for me. I can't believe God chose me. I can't believe God elected me. I can't believe he gave me his grace. And all pride and all superiority and all feelings that were better than other people are completely excluded. And that causes us to worship God. It's a humble worship. This is the reality. This is what the Bible teaches. If God didn't elect, if God didn't elect some, if God didn't choose some, Nobody would choose him. Our eyes are darkened with our own sin. Every man chooses his own way. Every man wants to worship his own God. Every man wants to be the captain of his soul and rule his own destiny. If God didn't elect some, everyone would perish. Now, let me illustrate this. In election and regeneration... God causes, by sheer grace, your eyes of faith to be opened. And he lets you see. And then you can respond to him. Okay? Let me illustrate this. hundred people are on a conveyor belt. You, you know those things that you... This is a conveyor belt. It's the only word I got. You're in the, you're in the uh, airport, right? You get to walk on that thing that makes you feel like you're running at an incredible rate, right? Whatever that thing is, that conve- conveyor belt. hundred people are on this thing. They're all blindfolded. At the end of this conveyor belt, though, it's not another runway. At the end of this conveyor belt is a huge, flaming, 
lava pit. Right? Let's just use it. Right? At the end of this pit is a huge lava pit. And you're standing on the outside. Obviously, thank God, you're not blindfolded for whatever reason. You're standing on the outside. And you see all these people on this conveyor belt. And they're dropping off into this lava pit. Blindfolded. And you run down to them. And you go, whoa, 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 whoa. You're headed to destruction. You're headed for a fire pit. You're headed for lava. Get off. Get off of this thing. And they're like, chill out, man. We're not having... I'm headed to Orlando. I can feel it getting warmer. (laughs) It's spring break in the Quad Cities. Get off my back. I can feel the warmth on my face. In a few minutes, in a few days, in a few hours, I'm going to be sitting on the beach, sipping a Mai Tai. I can't wait. What do you mean get off the... No. See, the Bible teaches that the doctrine of election is that God has to come down and pull the blindfold off of you. Then you look up and you say, whoa, whoa, that's not Florida. Whoa, where was I headed? What was I doing? How was I making my choices? How was I living? How was I rejecting the God of the Bible who loved me and saved me and gave his son for me? Whoa. See, election and predestination is that God comes down and takes the blindfold off of some. Now, do you consider that a forcing of a person's will? No. You're giving the person his or her mind back. You're pulling the scales off the eyes and you're allowing people to see reality. This is what God does to us in election and regeneration. He he makes the first move. He chooses us before we choose him. He gives us the eyes of faith, the eyes that can see that he is more beautiful and satisfying than everything else in this life. Now, listen, I want you to see this. Because the narrator, Moses, he's telling this to the um, Hebrew slaves as they're coming out of Egypt. And he he makes, uh, makes sure that we don't miss the point of this whole text. We naturally, listen, if you're a moralist, if you think Christians are the good guys, or they think they're the good guys, and that everybody else in the world are the bad guys, if you think God just wants you to be a really nice moral person and all God cares about is your behavior, and to become a Christian, you have to start obeying the rules, if you think that about the gospel, this is going to jack you up. Because if you think that, you're probably thinking, here's the moral of the story. Here's the moral of the story. (sighs) Jacob is a mean, deceitful little brother who takes advantage of his older brother's weakness. His brother was hungry. Can't a brother get a Pop-Tart? Why? He walks in, he's hungry, and little deceitful Jacob takes advantage and steals his birthright. What a deceitful little brother, as most little brothers are. (laughs) That is the way, listen, that is the way most people want to interpret this story. Jacob bad, Esau the victim. Jacob bad, Esau the victim. Younger brother bad, older brother good. Younger brother bad, older brother victim. But Moses doesn't let us do that. 
That's not what happens. See, see, that is what happens. Okay, Jacob does take advantage of his older brother. That is what happens. But that's not how, that's not the moral of this story. Look at verse 34. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and he drank and he rose and he went. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Thus Esau despised his inheritance. Esau, listen to me, let me use my analogy. Esau is still blindfolded. Esau is still on the tread or on the escalator, on the treadmill thing, blindfolded. Who, can I just ask you this? Let's just, let's just use good American sense here. Who in their right mind would trade the rights of the firstborn for a bowl of beef stew? But that's it, don't you see? That's it. He's not in his right mind. He's blindfolded. Nobody. I mean, let's just think in a worldly mind. Wealth, riches, your name to go on. That's the firstborn inheritance. You're not going to trade that for a bowl of dinty more beef stew. You're not. Unless you're blindfolded. Unless you're blinded to things. You don't really see the significance of your inheritance. You don't really see what's what you get with your inheritance. What was the birthright? What was the inheritance? Money, riches, servants. Yeah, but more than that. Covenant, salvation, eternity, God. Esau traded a life filled with God and the promise of an eternity filled with God for a bowl of red stuff, red stuff. See, this is where so many people miss the whole heartbeat of Christianity. If you miss this at all, you're gonna, all you're going to have, if you miss this, all you have is lifeless religion, a stark, bleak moralism that wants to turn people into religious clones. What God does in election and regeneration is he removes the blindfold from your eyes so that you can see that, listen to me, every single thing on this earth is beef stew compared to God. The whole point of election is the worship of God. And the only way for that to happen is if God removes the blindfolds from our eyes so that we can see Jesus. See, Jesus is better than money. Jesus is better than houses. Jesus is better than sex. Jesus is better than power. Jesus is better than awards and accolades. He's better than family. He's better than art, music, sports, and food. All of those things are good. All of those things are going to be in the new creation that God's promised us. They're all good things but they're all beef stew compared to him. This is why Jesus railed against the religious teachers. This is why he, he literally went off on the religious teachers nearly every chance that he got. And he would say, this is, why I'm, this is why Jesus gets so mad. Because you're blindfolded, but you're trying to lead other people. Don't listen to him. We're going to Florida. 
That's what people on the that's what people on the thing say. Don't listen to that preacher. Don't listen to that prophet. Don't listen to that book. Don't read that pod. Don't listen to that podcast. Don't 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 listen to that. We're going to Florida. He don't know what he's talking about. We're going to Florida. That's why Jesus railed against the religious leaders. You claim to see, but you don't. You still the desi- you still desire the praises that come from men more than you desire me. You're blindfolded. Listen, if, you're, if you find like me most of the time that your heart and your affections are more consistently stirred by the things of this world than they are by Jesus, let me offer you some good news. See, people don't go to hell because they sin. Every single human being except Jesus Christ has sinned. But God who is rich in mercy, has devised a way, the only way, in which sinful people can be forgiven and washed and completely made new, perfectly, perfectly clean from all their past sins, all their future sins, all their present sins, and live with him in paradise for all eternity. Not some ethereal, float away, sit on a cloud, you know, fluffy heaven. He's going to come back, recreate this whole earth, All the things that we enjoy will be here glorified. I love to CrossFit. I can't wait to CrossFit in heaven. When I'm working out, right, and that burn starts in my body, I hate that burn. I love it when I'm done. I love to see the things that I can do when I'm in shape. I love to run flat out for like eight seconds. That's all I can do, right? But in eternity, I'm going to run flat out all the way around the globe. I'm going to do it at least once because I can Right? The things we enjoy will be in heaven, will be on this earth in new creation. But there is only one way for us to enjoy that. There's only one way for those sinful people to be forgiven and get to enjoy that. See, God sent his one and only son into our world. He left heaven into our world as a missionary. Jesus lived the life that all of us failed to live. Jesus never lost sight of his inheritance. Jesus made every decision through the eyes of faith. When Esau got hungry, he traded his inheritance for food. When Jesus got hungry, he said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Jesus passed the test that Esau failed. Jacob striving for earthly security, manipulates his brother into giving him the inheritance. Jesus willingly leaves his inheritance in heaven and walks to a hill called Golgotha to let sinners like Jacob and Esau and you and me drive nails into his hands and place a crown of thorns on his head so that we can receive an eternal inheritance. Do you see this? Jesus passed every test that we failed. Jesus secured for us an eternal security and eternal inheritance for us by his perfect obedience. Jesus gave up his birthright so that we could be brought into it. Read Ephesians 1. I dare you to read Ephesians 1. The promised inheritance, listen to this, the promised inheritance for those who treasure Christ was purchased 
by Christ, and it's no less, listen, no less than this, the adoption into his family. We're no longer servants. We're called sons and daughters of God. Listen to this. No less than being filled with his own spirit. What? God doesn't just adopt us into his family. He fills us with his spirit. Number three, what else does God do? He's going to give us the joy of spending eternity in a God-soaked, newly created earth. Those are just three things. Read Ephesians 1 to blow your mind. You want, your, you want to know what you're predestined to? That's what you're predestined to. Adoption into his family, the filling of his spirit, the renewal of all things in him. People don't go to hell because they sin. People go to hell because they treat Jesus like he's worse. That they treat Jesus like he's worth less than a bowl of soup. Did you hear about that, that inheritance we just talked about? Jesus gave up everything so that you could gain everything. People go to hell for looking at Jesus and saying, nope, I'd rather have beef stew. I'd rather have sex the way I want it. I'd rather do politics the way I want it. I'd rather have power in this life. I'd rather be proud in this life. I'd rather make my own way and do with what I want to do with my money. I don't want to give. I don't want to sacrifice. I don't want to lay down. I don't want to live in community with people. I want to be my own person. When you do that, you're looking at the sacrifice of Jesus and you're saying, I'd rather have beasts too. That's why you go to hell. Not because you sin. Everybody sins. Everybody sins. So where are you at this morning? Have you caught a glimpse of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus that Paul would say, I count everything as dung. I count everything as garbage for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. If that's you, listen, this is a reason to rejoice. If you see Jesus as beautiful, not just as a way to get to heaven, not just as useful, but you see him as beautiful. The only way you can see that, the only way you can see all other things in the world like beef stew in comparison is if God has already opened your eyes. If you're in this room and you see Jesus as beautiful and you see God as pretty awesome and you see yourself as sinful and you see that awe-inspiring vision of Jesus dying for you on the cross, that means God has elected you, God has predestined you, God has called you to himself and more than likely you are an awakened sinner sitting here. And now your response to him is to say, Jesus, I put my faith in you for the rest of my life. Here it is. Here's my life. Take it. Use it for whatever you want to use it for. How will you respond to that grace this morning? Next week, we're going to baptize. I know we're going to baptize one. God and his grace has converted sinners, and it's so great that God has brought people to himself. We're going to baptize somebody next week at Easter. But if you want to be baptized, if you're in this room today and you say, Justin, I think what you're talking about, like that in my heart, like I do see Jesus is all pretty awesome right now. I do see him on diamond on the cross, and I think he's died for my sins. I think you should be baptized. Obey God and be baptized. Obey Jesus and be baptized. If that's you, I want you, actually, after the service, um, after we do communion, after the last song, I'm going to go stand right over there by that ramp. And if you want me to pray with you, if you want to talk to me, if you think that might be you, I'll be right over there.
Why don't you come talk to me? We can baptize you next week. Right? Believe? Let's, let's do that. Let me pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your one-way love. I thank you for your election. I thank you for your predestination. I thank you for your goodness towards us. Even though I can't get my mind all the way around it, even though I look at it and go, why me? I'm such a moron. I'm such an idiot. But you are so good. You are so gracious. I pray that you would use a church full of idiots to impact this city. Pray that you pray that you would use a church filled full of sinners to tell this broken city and broken world about a God who loves them, a God who's made a way, a God who's been gracious. And Father, I pray that as we come to the table this morning, we would confess our sins, we would search our heart, and we would thank you, Jesus for being so incredibly good to us. We believe that your presence is really here in the table, in the elements this morning, that you are present with us. Jesus, thank you for paying our price, dying our death, living our life, raising again to new life, to show us even when we die, yet will we live. Resurrection has happened, is happening, and it's going to happen in the future. Let us worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.